Uh, hopefully you're turning to Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, a couple weeks ago, on a Saturday night, I came back into church after having been gone for three months. And I looked around and I said, wow, everyone is really tired. Everyone is worn out and exhausted, especially our Hope Kids servers. Uh, so many of our Hope Kids servers. If you didn't know, we have uh, six different people who serve in Hope Kids were, um, have moved away. Uh, or we're not here during the summer, and so our Hope Kids servers are taxed, if you're curious. Um, and I looked around, just like, okay, so uh, also in just complete transparency, when I left for sabbatical, we didn't really have a plan for what we were going to be preaching through when I got back. And so I knew I was preaching October 7th, we just hadn't really talked about it until the last week of September on what we were going to be preaching. So uh, I wanted to share just what God has put on my heart and then in some conversations over the last couple of weeks, just uh, and where we ended up last week of just saying, uh, we need to get back to basics. And here's what I mean by that. Eight years ago, Tab and I moved down here with a team, and in those first two or three months of moving down here, we had 32 people move here with us as part of a church plant team. And because of my excellent leadership, within one year, over half of them left. So we were getting smaller really quickly. And I was part of a church plant in Virginia for six years. And I thought, and, and Tab and I, we spent so much time discussing strategies and how do we go about planning a church and what do we do and how do we make this work. And in my head, and by the way, I read this in zero books, but in my head, you are a successful church when you hit 1,000 people and then you're a really good pastor when they ask you to come speak at a conference. So that was the goal, right? It's right there in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And as we were coming down and that was the driving goal, that's what we did at our church in Virginia, uh, I would just, okay, we grew, this, this church grew from uh, 60 people to 1,200 people in about two years. And that sounds so impressive. We cheated. We planted a church right next to the largest Christian university in the country, and they all are required to go to church. So those numbers sound great. Spring break, Christmas break, summertime, not so great numbers. Uh, I'll get more into that in a story. So as we come down here, for some reason, this was my mindset. Uh, we did not set out to do church on Saturday night, and we'll talk about that more as we go the next couple of weeks. And we got here, and people kept saying, oh, you need to do this thing called Cypress Project. It's, it's for church planners and pastors uh, of how do we reach a community, you know, how, and this would be really good. So again, I was just trying to get as much information as possible, because again, I had a church I had to grow to 1,000 people in six months. Again, the timeline I put on myself. And so I went, and the very first session, it was eight months long, a session a month, the very first one, Neil McGlowan, uh, he asked this question. He said, have you made a bunch of plans for a church and just expect God to go with you because it's a church? Or have you stopped and asked, God, what are you doing and how do I partner with what you're doing? And I was crushed. And I mean like a physical hurting in my stomach like I had just gotten punched because for years I had been planning this mission for God without ever talking to God about it without ever asking him, what do you want? Uh, how do I play a part in what you're doing? And I literally just had all these notebooks and pens and all the conferences I had attended and people I had talked to and church planners. I, and it was just shot. 
And so as we went on, it started to form who we became as, as Hope Church and continue to seek out what does this mean next for us. And so it was going through this material, what the Cypress Project, that we're going to be going through the next couple of weeks that started to help form a much more biblical mission for us as a church. So uh, read with me in Isaiah. We're going to read the, the chapter 55 in its entirety. Isaiah writes, real quick background. Isaiah is writing this hundreds of years before Jesus. He's writing it to the Jewish people. Uh, Isaiah, um, not a lot of people were big fans of his, but he was a very well-to-do prophet, usually in the uh, palace, uh, to be found. And a lot of stuff that he's saying at his time made sense to absolutely zero people he was saying it to. And so let's start in chapter 55. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know I will come, will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and He will have mercy on them and to our God, for He will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. So Isaiah is communicating what will happen hundreds of years later. And to the hearers of this, it doesn't make sense. Now, what do we do when things don't make sense? We make it make sense. And it usually is about us, and it's about making us feel better about ourselves. So I can't speak for what the audience to this heard. Uh, I can't speak for what this then uh, became, these scrolls of Isaiah, uh, for the preceding generations until Jesus came. Undoubtedly, there were people who knew what he was talking about, the coming Messiah and the kingdom that he would bring with him. For the most part, this didn't make sense. Here's why. In verses 1 through 5, what we have is an open invitation. There is this open invitation, especially the part when he says, and you will reach nations that you know not. This is being said to the nation of Israel. 
who felt and, and believed and were called to be God's chosen people. And so they were God's chosen people, other people weren't. And he says, and there's nations that you've never heard of, and they will also come after the Lord. Why? Because of this open invitation that the gospel has to it. And that's what Jesus has called us to, and I love this song we just saying, Christ be magnified in our lives. How are we, as we're talking about for the next couple of weeks, how is Christ being magnified in our life? How are we demonstrating who Christ is to us, to the world around us? Now, we use a term a lot called the gospel. The gospel is literally translated as the good news. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good news of Jesus Christ, is this. That Jesus Christ came to earth to live as a man, that he took our sins on his shoulders, and he paid the price for our sins by being beaten and tortured and eventually killed on a cross. And when he died, he took our sins to the grave. Then he defeated death when he rose again, leaving our sins in the grave. So anyone who calls on him can be saved. You could say amen there. Anyone that calls on him can be saved. That is the good news that Jesus defeated sin, that Jesus defeated death, and that when we put our faith in him, when we make Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, behold, we are a new creation. The old things are passed away. Everything has become new. We now are back in this reconciled relationship with God. And all that he asks us to do in response is to magnify him in our everyday lives, to tell other people about him, that we in our lives demonstrate this open invitation of the gospel to every man, woman, and child that we interact with that God and his sovereignty has placed us with. And what we call this is gospel saturation. Gospel saturation. Saturating the area where we live with the gospel. So you're going to hear us say this, every man, woman, and child. Gospel saturation is ensuring that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel without having to come or go anywhere means it is our responsibility that we, the people that we interact with on a daily basis, a weekly basis, the people that God has sovereignly put in our life, that we are continuing up to show, taking advantage of the opportunities to, to, they see the gospel being lived out in our lives, they see changes being made. We do that really difficult thing for some of us where we ask for forgiveness when we recognize we're wrong. They hear the gospel, we explain to them what the gospel is, and then they have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. But here's the truth of it, and again, I say this not trying to belittle the gospel by any means. The gospel is the greatest product this world has to offer, and we are the worst marketing system you can imagine. If you want me to represent Christ, like if you want, uh, here's someone that's going to represent Christ, and you pick me, you fail. Here's why. Here's why we can trust God, because only God in his power would choose you and I to represent him. Why? Corinthians tells us, in our weakness, his power is made known. When people see changes being made in our life, they know that there must be an unbelievable creator God who can change somebody like me. And so because of that, in our thinking, that's the worst marketing, but God has this perfect plan that he's laid out. But it's going to take us doing our parts I'm sorry, we have the opportunity to partner with God in what he's doing and will accomplish with or without us. We have that opportunity to 
join him in this open invitation ourselves to invite other people in. So here's what's going on in the Charleston area. These are some stats that we'll go over in future weeks. There was an article that came out about two months ago um, that declared through statistical research that Generation Z is going back to church. Generation Z is now being spotted as they are looking for something else. They are looking to go back to church, and they are starting to go and visit churches. So we usually complain about whatever the generation is that's youngest, but just know that Generation Z is going back to church. They are looking. They're going to any church, but they're looking. Another stat that drives uh, us uh, here at Hope Church, something that's been on my mind um, for many years, and that is that the single parents are increasing in America. There are more and more single parents every day, and there are less and less in the churches in America. There is this giant chasm between single parents growing and then not feeling comfortable to go to church. Um, another crazy thing that's happening, so if you're not aware of this, the church as a whole in America is dying quickly. Uh, one of the fastest dying churches in America, to the point where other countries are now sending missionaries here uh, to America. Just this last summer, uh, while on sabbatical, I was meeting missionaries who are from Brazil, uh, have grown up their entire lives in Brazil, and their missions organization is sending them here to Florida because there's so many Portuguese-speaking people in Florida and churches are starting, and they're doing the same with Spanish-speaking missionaries. That's just the people that I met, uh, let alone the other missions agencies in South Korea that are sending missionaries here, and we can go through. Um, and in two years, it is expected in the greater Charleston area, uh, we'll have single-digit, uh, so 9% or less, percentage of the population will be uh, gospel-believing believers, or evangelical Christians. Uh, not only that, but right now it is estimated that less than 10% go to church on a Sunday morning in the greater Charleston area in general. So that's where we live, learn, work, and play. Yeah, Saturday night as well. I meant to say weekend. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> so what does this mean for us? This means that gospel saturation calls for a movement of kingdom people sent into the harvest as missionary disciples to display his glory and share his good news. Those are key words, those four, movement, kingdom, harvest, and disciples, because that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next four weeks. So if this doesn't make sense yet, we will try to make it make sense over the course of the next four weeks. Gospel saturation calls for a movement of kingdom people sent into the harvest as missionary disciples to display his glory and share his good news. So you're wondering, how does gospel saturation work? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because we can go to verses 6 or 7, and we see that it starts with, right there in verse 6, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Proverbs 9, 10 says that the beginning of wisdom is fearing God. So what does it look like for us if we are trying to figure out how we how we operate in a way that we are living out this movement that God is on, where God is calling his creation back to himself and he has allowed us to become these missionary disciples, what do we start by doing? Seek the Lord. Start where wisdom is gained. Because the thing that we have to remember, if it's his plan, we must seek him first. And I was thinking about taking the word first off there and just put, we must seek him no matter what. 
But if we are trying to live according to the plan that he has laid out in his perfect creator ways, then we must seek him. The last two weeks we've been talking about the importance of spending time alone with God. Spending time in prayer, spending time in his word, spending time. Uh, that's how we can make a difference where we live, learn, work, and play is when we seek him first and listen to what he is telling us as we communicate and, and try to saturate our area with the gospel. We must seek the Lord first. And then verses 8 through 9. And this is both scary and also a wonderful promise, at least for me. God's ways are best. Why do we seek the Lord? Because His ways are best. Our ways, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves the opposite, our ways are not the best. My personal ways are not good. I rely on my limited amount of knowledge and wisdom that I have and my limited amount of experience and I make decisions based on those. Chances are they are not God's ways. They are Rob's ways. And if we're going to partner with God in this movement that he has called us to, then we have to understand that God's ways are best. God's commandments are not suggestions. So how does this movement work? What is this movement of God? I'm glad you asked because we're going to be spending all next week on it. But to put it simply, God is on the redemptive mission among every man, woman, and child, requiring the multiplication of missionary disciples, leaders, and churches. God is on the redemptive mission among every man, woman, and child, requiring the multiplication of missionary disciples, leaders, and churches. And I want you to notice a very important word that stood out to me, and I wanted to make stand out to you. That word, multiplication, not addition. The goal is not to grow your church as big as possible. Now, I have zero problem with big churches. Whatever God has called somebody to go and lead, great. No problem, they've been a huge blessing to us. We wouldn't exist without some very big churches who made very wonderful donations to us when we were first starting. But multiplication is what our goal at Hope Church is. Multiplying missionary disciples. How are we reaching people that don't know Christ, who know Christ, and now join us in operating on this mission of God? What does it look like to multiply leaders? And last week, that's what I talked about. That was something that I feel I have not done a good job of the last five years or so. So how do we now focus on how do we help develop leaders here among us? Because we have to multiply them. How do we multiply other churches? Not add, not grow big, but how do we find out people's gift sets that are here? How do we help them so that we can start yet another church? Uh, the reason that the Cypress Project, where this came from, was Neil McGlone was part of a huge church in Charlotte. And they were growing, and they were baptizing, and they were raising millions of dollars and building new buildings, and they were growing and growing. And he said, every year, even though we were growing, the city of Charlotte was becoming more and more lost. And I said, something has to change. We can't do this by ourselves. Instead of trying to grow our church bigger, we have to start other churches, and we have to start working with the churches that already exist around us if we are going to make a difference in our city. It can't be about our church name. It has to be about us as a people of God working in collaboration with each other to do this, to multiply leaders, to multiply missionary disciples, to multiply churches. So it's not about addition. It's not the biggest church wins. To me, it's how are we doing with however many people God brings to us. How are we taking responsibility for what God has called us to do and taking part in his redemptive mission? Again, I can go on and on about that. Come back next week. 
Then verse 10 through 12, what we see here, again, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. And the amazing thing is, is we don't always see the effects. In fact, there's no way for us to see the effects. Think of Jesus, and he's choosing these 12 people as his disciples. And from there, you and I are meeting in a church. God's word lasts forever. Uh, as we go through Matthew, we constantly see Jesus as he's giving the Pharisees a hard time. And so who does he choose to be one of the greatest church planners? A Pharisee that turns his life around to follow the Lord and Paul. God's ways don't make sense. God's ways are not our ways, but God's word accomplishes God's purpose. And just, I love the illustration of it rains and it snows. And that water waters the trees. That snow melts and starts to run downhill. Then it hits streams. Then it hits rivers. Then it hits bigger bodies of water and bigger rivers. And eventually it makes its way into the ocean. And so when we're standing outside and it's raining, we don't see the effects of where that rain is going. And that's how God's word is. It's not a matter of us being able to see the effects, it's of us obeying. We have to think of the gospel as the cloud in which we are, we are raining the gospel down as we saturate the area where we live, learn, work, and play. We got to see this uh, just for my own personal life. I had to see this play out over the course of the last year. I think I've told the story before. I'm pulling into school and I have invite cards. This is not about me because I really bombed this. I have invite cards in the front of my car that just say they're the business cards in the back. I'm dropping Rock off at school, and I am so alert at 6.45 in the morning. And Rock is five years old at the time and says, Dad, can I have two of those cards to give to friends? And as a pastor who's all about multiplying missionary disciples, I said, no, buddy. Because in my head, I didn't want to waste them, right? Like they're going to end up being paper airplanes somewhere. And I thought about it, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I would never, who cares? Like, again, that we don't know what God's purpose is when we obey him. So I gave him two invite cards. And every day, he only wanted two, every morning. And he would go in and he'd bring them to his friends at school. He handed them to one of his best friends named Anna Lynn. And so I go to a birthday party on a Sunday morning, and Anna Lynn's mom comes up to me and says, are you a pastor? That is a very dangerous question, by the way. You never know how it's going to go. Oftentimes, not good. That question has led to me finding out about horrible churches that these people went to, and now they're mad at me. I'm like, I promise I don't know that person. So they're like, well, we have a church, but I do like the idea that you're on Saturday night, and I think that's really cool. So next thing you know, months later, Tiffany and her husband and her three kids come to church. So Tiffany starts inviting her friends as well. And... Two of her friends come, they have a church, but they came and visited a couple weeks in a row, uh, Brian and Rachel. So we met them, because Brian and Ryan were kind of showing off with their frisbee skills outside after church one night. And Brian and Rachel, and then there's this other couple, and she's a realtor, and another couple's moving from Long Island, and she's from Long Island, and they met, and uh, there's, she's selling them the house, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they are asking about a church, and they're like, well, there's this church that meets on Saturday night. We'll take you there with them. And so that was the Lubinskys coming down from 
uh, Long Island who ended up coming to church once, and then in August, their entire family got baptized at the beach. And then last week, the other couple is James and Louise. Now, I don't know, there's a lot of other parts in there. There's a lot of other people. But that's just one example of a five-year-old who I don't know if he knows the Lord yet, asking for an invite card. Something that morning, he went to school many mornings that those cards are always sitting there and never asked for one. And that morning, he asked for one, or he asked for two. And I said no. <laughs> that was my first thought. When we obey God, his ways are not our ways. We are just to obey. We are just to go out. And like this water pouring down from the heavens and, and affecting every tree and every flower and every blade of grass that it affects and goes into a river, and, and now it's the life source of the water creatures, and it goes on, so is God's word. It lasts forever. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. And what is his purpose? God is building his kingdom. And we've talked about this at length, and again, we're going to talk about it more as we go on. But God's kingdom is greater than any singular church and demands the church collaborate to advance the kingdom in their place. We represent the kingdom when we do the things that God has called us to do. I think of it this way. God's kingdom, this beautiful world, was established in the Garden of Eden, and then sin messed it up. One day we will live like that for eternity with him, and our job now is to represent that kingdom here on earth in the way that we live. So we feed poor people. We feed those that are hungry. We help the widow. We help the uh, single parents. We help, and the list goes on and on. We do whatever it costs. We do whatever we can at whatever it might cost, because that is what representing the kingdom is here on earth. And we invite other churches as well to join with us. I love the grocery giveaway because the amount of churches that are represented here, other volunteers coming from other churches and other pastors and uh, other churches have flipped the bill to cover the whole thing in multiple times. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about representing God's kingdom to a hurting people who need him. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. Why? Because God sends it forth. He says, so shall my word be which goes forth from my Mouth. His word is the actual breathe in 2 Timothy 2, 16, 17. The, it says actual breath is who Jesus is. It is the exhale, meaning this is my word in Jesus, and this is now how you live. This is how you live it out. And then, ultimately, God prospers his mission. Look what he says. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. This is how we now reach out into the harvest. We talk a lot about the harvest, Matthew 9, 38 through 40. We're told that in God's harvest, God loves his creation and calls for his people to mobilize in the harvest, owning the lostness in their place. Matthew 9, 38 says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, for the fields are ripe unto harvest, but the laborers are few. And that's where the verse ends. And then it goes to chapter 10, and it's a big surprise for the disciples when he goes, You're the laborers. And that's the same command for us. The, the fields are ripe unto harvest. We say we're going to have not over 90% in the next two years, if we continue on this trend, which I don't see it changing, 90% of the people in, living in our communities, living in our area, do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
God in his sovereignty has placed us here as his missionary disciples to represent him, join him on his mission, and point people to him in the harvest. We are the laborers in the harvest. The fields are ripe unto harvest. His ways are not our ways. We just obey. Another thing that I heard, and this again goes against everything that I had learned my entire life as a pastor's kid, was if your church is lacking something, you steal somebody from another church who's really good at it. And that's what I thought. That's what we did in Virginia was a lot of, we, again, you heard this, we were a church of 60 people in like two years we went to 1,200 people. In that same period of time, I think we had three baptisms, meaning we weren't doing a great job reaching the harvest, meaning, and I feel extremely guilty of this, I did a lot of talking people out of the church they went to to come to our church. I did. And I trained people how to do it. Not on purpose, I didn't teach a class, but that was the example. Uh, people would come to our church and be like, oh, I used to go to this church, and your entire worship team was the entire worship team at that church. I'd say, yeah, give us about three years, they'll be the entire worship team at another church. And that was the reality. So churches grew, but it was usually at the cost of another church. Uh, there's a church in uh, Somerville that a couple years ago was growing, and they planted another church, and that's great, that's what we want. But what wasn't talked about is there was five other churches in Somerville that went out completely under at the same time. So what we need to do, and so as I was thinking through this, and again, in going through this Cypress project, he said something, everything your church needs is in the harvest. Now that's become something we say all the time in our stewardship team meetings, that's become something we say all the time in our staff meetings. Mainly it's me telling myself, everything your church needs is in the harvest. When you're low, your finances are low, how are you reaching the harvest? When your worship team is getting smaller every week, how are you reaching the harvest? Everything your church needs is in the harvest. How are we doing it, going out into the harvest and doing what God commanded us? Again, his ways are not our ways. Then we get to verse 13, the last verse. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Did I skip one? There's joy aligning with God's mission. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Only God can do what he can do. There is joy aligning with God's mission. I love when you go back and you think about the mountains will cheer, the trees will clap their hands, that is what true celebration looks like. I love the video of, of the baptism. And again, I was the only one close enough because nobody else would get in the water. But the joy you see on people's faces when they're baptized. The joy you see of now this is something different. There's no joy like that in the entire world. It says, the trees of the field will clap their hands. You will go out in joy as we accomplish this purpose together for God. Seeing people become a new creation because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has accomplished, there is nothing like that. Only God can take something meant for evil and turn it into something beautiful. How often do we celebrate that? And even in our own lives, 
when things happen, and again, we've spent a lot of time praying with each other and for each other, when things are just not going well in people's lives or things you just feel like they couldn't get any worse. But God has this amazing way of taking something that the world meant for evil. Taking something that Satan had another purpose for to try to make people sad and depressed, put them in an out-of-control cycle, and only God can take that and heal it and use it for his purpose. This brings us to how do we make disciples, or what is a disciple? As God accomplishes his mission in the world through the transformed lives of his people, driven by clear biblical truths and missionary behaviors. God accomplishes his mission in the world through the transformed lives of his people, that's the disciple, driven by clear biblical truths and missionary behaviors. This is why we want to put such a much bigger emphasis on discipleship starting now starting this year. What does it look like for us now to really, if this is what we've been called to do, is to go into the world and make disciples, we need to have clear expectations and we need to have a very simple and easy way to help people get involved in this discipleship process. Again, we're going to be talking on that a lot in about four weeks. So what does this mean? What is the application that we take away tonight? The first thing I want to make very, very clear is our driving goal should be his glory and not my story. His glory is greater than my story. In my life, we can, in, in your life, in my life, every day, with every decision we make, we're either trying to make ourselves look awesome or we're trying to make God look awesome. And you cannot do both at the same time. So when we go to make decisions, are we honestly seeking out? Do we have this mentality that his glory is greater than my story? In other words, what God is trying to accomplish is greater than what I am trying to accomplish? Or do my list of priorities and my calendar and my schedule and how, what I do on any given day, is it really demonstrating that I'm trying to make myself look awesome? That I'm much more involved in my story than I am his glory. I'm much more carrying out the mission of Rob more than I am the mission of God. We must seek out what God wants, not what we want. And it's not difficult. Uh, working in three different Christian colleges and universities, that was a question you always get, especially right around the senior year. Well, I'm just trying to find what God wants for my life. Oh, it's very clear. Like, it's very clear in his Bible what he wants for your life. It's very clear what he wants in my life. Now, he doesn't necessarily give an address of where you have to do it, but you obey him and you walk in his truth. You obey him and you carry out his mission, no matter where you go. We here, as in this country, we have the ability to move where we want. Not everybody has that, but they have the same mission of God. You do what God's called you to do, wherever you live, learn, work, and play. So here's two questions for you. Uh, please discuss these in community groups, discuss these in your household, discuss these with your accountability partner, your best friend, discuss them with yourself. Question number one, are you owning the lostness where you live, learn, work, and play? Make four different categories. It was easier when it was just three. We used to say live, learn, uh, live, work, and play, but then we realized, oh, we're dropping people that learn and students of any kind. So are you owning the lostness where you live, learn, work, and play? Make different categories of those four. This is where I do this. In what ways am I, meaning owning the lostness, meaning like I am taking responsibility for these people that God has put in my life so that they have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
That is my part in being as a missionary disciple wherever I live, learn, work, and play. Are you owning the lostness where you live, learn, work, and play? Here's another question you can kind of make a subtitle to that. When is the last time you clearly walked somebody through why you decided to follow Jesus and how they can too? Sharing the gospel isn't just saying, oh, I go to church. Because if you have talked to as many people as me, everyone here goes to church. So, don't say, I go to church and think that's the gospel. Walk them through. Why do you trust Jesus? Even if there was no churches around, why do you trust Jesus? Why do you follow after him? That'll also help you answer if you're currently owning the lostness where you live, learn, work, and play. And then the second question is what we're going to do right now. And I want you to be very specific. In fact, it even says on there, be specific. And write one thing you want to do differently this week. Don't do it right now, because what we're going to do now is we're going to take some time to pray. Just you talking to God and asking Him, Lord, show me what is one thing. We've talked about a lot of things. It might be actually scheduling time that's uninterrupted of spending time reading His Word. Spending uninterrupted time talking to Him in prayer. Spending time uninterrupted. Notice I keep saying uninterrupted because we like to multitask. It's like, oh, I prayed while I drove to work. Don't. Uninterrupted time. I mean, pray while you drive to work. Pray. pray for other drivers, please. But what does it look like for you to have just time between you and God without the distractions of life? So let's go to prayer right now. We're going to spend a moment or two in prayer, and you just talk to God. Say, God, tell me what is the one specific area that I'm then going to write down on this piece of paper and that I'm going to tell somebody about sometime this week that needs to change in my life to carry out your mission. Let's pray. As we wrap up our time together, I, it's been really interesting the last couple weeks because there's been several things that beforehand would have just been crushing to me and trying to figure out, okay, <laughs> we have to find a new place to meet. Now what? And the reason I know how I would act during that is because I did it a couple times last year, when we had to move three times last year. <laughs> I am so excited about what God has for us. And I would love to tell you what it is, but I don't know yet. But I'm so excited, and I actually just feel an unbelievable, odd sense of peace and comfort over the last couple of weeks that can only be explained by God because I know how Rob would normally answer. I'm so excited that you are here and that you are going to be doing this with us, hopefully. Um, because, again, I don't know what God has for us, but I'm asking you sincerely to continue to pray. Uh, continue to pray and ask for wisdom as we move forward in what God is leading us to. So let's do that right now. We're just going to spend some time praying. Uh, so wherever you are, just join with me. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have. Lord, when I think of Psalm 103, says, you continually show us mercy we do not deserve. That you love us with a love that just doesn't make any earthly sense. But Lord, I'm so thankful for your wisdom. I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. Lord, our prayer is that if anyone here this evening that has never called out to you and made you the forgiver of their sin and the leader of your life, that you would be working in their heart, that you would be working in their mind, that 
uh, they would call out to you or, or that you would give them the courage to come and talk to one of us so that they can ask questions about what it means to know you. But Lord, for those that are here this evening that do know you, our prayer is that we would be attentive to what you have to say to us. Lord, that we would take seriously your commands of spending time with you, that we would take seriously what it is to seek you out, to spend time talking to you. Lord, we are surrounded by lostness. Lord, please take the blinders off of our eyes so that we can see the world as you see the world. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.